The old pilot's plain tales, flowers on the waves. McDonnell Douglas needed to update their DC-10 with something larger. They couldn't afford the cost of a completely new design, so developed a new derivative of the DC-10 designated the MD-11. The initial order book looked promising, but before long the three-engined aircraft had to compete with the Airbus A330, A340 and Boeing's 777 and 767. Although the aircraft failed to meet its projected range capability, it was purchased by a number of airlines such as American, Delta, World Airways, JAL, KLM, Varig and China Eastern. Swiss Air was also a major customer, purchasing a fleet of 20. It was one of these aircraft, Hotel Bravo India Whiskey Foxtrot, that was operating a night flight out of New York's JFK Airport on the 2nd of September 1998, bound for Geneva in Switzerland with the flight number Swiss Air 111. For most of its life, Swiss Air was one of the major international airlines and because of its financial stability, was known as the Flying Bank. However, particularly after deregulation, it attempted to both merge and expand further into the European market. However, after acquiring stakes in some rather unsuccessful airlines, it began to lose significant amounts of money. 9-11 would eventually herald the demise of Swiss Air, but in the period up to that point, it was trying to compete by modernising its aircraft. One of those projects was to introduce a third-party entertainment and gambling system into its MD-11 aircraft, and it invested around 75 million US dollars with an almost unknown Las Vegas-based company, who installed an in-flight entertainment network on all of the airline's long-haul jets. Analysts have questioned why such a reputable airline should have associated themselves with an unproven system from a small and relatively unknown company, but an answer has never been forthcoming. Other major airlines chose systems from better-known manufacturers, such as GEC Marconi and Hughes Avicom. On the night in question, at 18 minutes past 8 in the evening, Swiss Air 111 departed JFK for a routine flight back to Geneva. The MD-11 had 215 passengers on board, with two pilots and cabin crew numbering 12. The captain was an experienced and well-respected man, having nearly 10,000 hours of experience, ranging from his time flying fighters with the Swiss Air Force to DC-9s, MD-80s, A320s and then the MD-11. As well as being a line pilot, he worked as a training captain, instructing other pilots both in the air and in the simulator. 
He was known to work with exactness and precision, as well as being someone capable of creating a friendly and professional atmosphere in the cockpit. His first officer was also an ex-Swiss Air Force pilot who had flown the MD-80 and A320 before moving to the MD-11. Despite only having 2,700 hours with Swiss Air, he was also an instructor pilot. The aircraft they were in that night was modern and well-equipped. It had a fully glass cockpit with only a few basic instruments such as the standby flying instruments. The passengers in the first class and business cabins also enjoyed the use of seatback TV screens. The entertainment system needed to draw 4.4 kilovolt amperes of 115 volt AC power. The aim was to power this system from the electrical buses that powered all the cabin services, but it was discovered that the power available would be insufficient. Therefore, an additional bus, the 115-volt AC bus number 2, was used to satisfy the power needs of this hungry system. However, whilst there was an easy way to isolate the cabin surfaces from the electrical system by turning the cabin bus off, there was no way to cut power to the entertainment system from the number 2 bus. As such, the fitting of this system would not have been approved by the FAA and there were no instructions on how to deactivate the feed from bus number 2 in an emergency. Indeed, since the design flaw wasn't discovered until after this flight, the pilots would not have been aware that the entertainment system would stay powered after the cabin bus was deactivated. Swiss Air Flight 111 departed JFK and climbed to the northeast, following the armada of other transatlantic traffic heading for the North Atlantic track system entry points around Newfoundland. The aircraft had reached its initial cruising level, and apart from a short period where they lost contact with their traffic, probably by selecting the wrong frequency, all had gone smoothly. In the cabin, the passengers would have been sitting back and getting ready for their meal service. In first class and business, the entertainment system had been turned on, and I guess most of the passengers there were busy on their touchscreen selecting movies to watch before settling down to get some sleep. Unbeknown to them, it is suspected that the wiring, feeding power to provide them with amusement, had a crack in its covering and was arcing through the broken insulation in the ceiling near the back of the cockpit. On the flight deck, the captain and his first officer would have been getting on with their usual duties, putting in their transatlantic routing request, getting weathers and checking the aircraft systems. After leaving the New York area, they would have been handed off to Boston, who would guide them further north until they entered the first of the Canadian control areas, Moncton. They had been airborne for just an hour and 52 minutes when the pilots first noticed a smell of burning on the flight deck, followed about 20 seconds later 
by a little smoke. From that moment on, things were going to happen frighteningly fast, but, of course, they had no idea just how quickly the situation would escalate, and anyway, very soon the initial smoke disappeared. There is very little a pilot can do to establish the source of a burning smell or smoke unless it's clearly coming out of a specific piece of equipment. And it's not realistic to try to establish the origin just by the smell. About two minutes later, the smoke reappeared and seemed to be coming from the area of the air vents in the ceiling at the back of the cockpit. There were a few possible sources of the fire. It could be coming from electrical equipment, from burning material, or from the air conditioning system. Since the smoke was coming from around the right overhead air diffuser, it's probable that they considered one of the air packs to be at fault. The usual drill would be to turn off each air conditioning pack in turn to see if the smoke dissipated, bearing in mind it can take several minutes to blow residual smoke through the air ducts before it becomes obvious which pack is at fault. None of the actions for a smoke drill can be done quickly, and even if the source of ignition is removed, it might be too late. A fire might be burning hidden within the airframe. However, it took some 13 minutes for the smoke to become serious enough to prompt them to begin this drill. Tests after the event suggested that arcing would probably have produced a small flame in the layer of MPET, that's metallized polyethylene terephthalate blankets of insulation material that lay between the skin and the inner surface of the cabin. The pilot certainly isolated the power to the cabin services by turning off the cabin bus, but as we know, that would not have cut all the power to the entertainment system. Three minutes after the first sign of smoke, the captain advised Moncton that they had a problem. They declared a pan-pan-pan, stating that they had smoke in the cockpit and they needed an immediate return to a convenient place such as Boston. They were cleared to descend and the controller suggested that they might want to go to Halifax instead as it was considerably closer. After donning their oxygen masks, a device that makes communication difficult and every task twice as hard, they agreed that Halifax would be better and a British Airways speedbird came back to them with the Halifax weather. At this point, the amount of smoke would still have been small, since there wasn't an easy path for the smoke to pass from the location of the growing fire into the flight deck. However, in the five minutes before they donned their oxygen masks, both pilots may well have been affected by the noxious and potentially toxic combustion byproducts of the burning insulation. The captain had the following factors to consider. He had assessed that they were faced with air conditioning smoke, which did not require an emergency descent, just an expedited one. 
Both pilots were unfamiliar with Halifax. They didn't have the approach charts readily available and the back course ILS, being an unusual approach, wasn't pre-programmed into their flight management system. They would need time to familiarise themselves with the approach and then set it up. In the cabin there was no sign of smoke and a meal service was underway, which was going to take some time to pack away to secure the cabin for a safe landing. He also knew that they were above the maximum normal landing weight, and although they were permitted to land overweight, it still posed some risks. As a result, without some clue that there was an unseen fire growing in the ceiling behind him, it is quite reasonable that he should consider dumping fuel. Of course, had he known the seriousness of the situation that was developing, he undoubtedly would have assessed the circumstances differently. In the area above the fuselage ceiling known as the attic, the space was filling with hot combustion byproducts from burning insulation and the heat burned off the cap from an air conditioning duct which fanned the flames and created a more intense fire. The fire moved forwards, and as fasteners melted and failed, more layers of the insulation material came loose and ignited. By now, Moncton had positioned Swiss Air 111 at 8,000 feet and not far from the airfield in a good position to dump fuel. The calls from the aircraft were spotted with errors, and requests for information had to be repeated. It's fairly obvious that the pressure of getting everything done in time, plus handling the growing emergency, was sapping the capacity of the pilots. About 11 minutes after first smelling smoke, the pilots got to the point in their checklist where they were required to turn off the cabin bus, which they did. They had no idea what that action was going to unleash on them. With the cabin bus off, the cabin airflow fans, which up to that point had kept the fire away from most of the cockpit, stopped and the airflow reversed. The fire and heat were drawn forward into the cockpit attic area and then down through the cockpit and into the avionics compartment below. The environment on the flight deck would have deteriorated rapidly, which was confirmed by the multitude of failures that subsequently occurred. Numerous master warnings bled with increasing numbers of system faults. The autopilot failed, navigation instruments and the radio failed. Messages, cues and alerts would have appeared all within an environment that was becoming burning hot over 600 degrees centigrade in places, and filled with dense and toxic smoke. The first officer who was flying the aircraft lost all his displays and had to fly from the small standby instruments. The cockpit lighting failed. An engine fire warning illuminated and they shut that engine down. Almost thankfully, the last five minutes of flight are not recorded as power to the voice and data recorders also failed. What we do know is that the captain had tried to open his sliding window and had finally left his seat to use his quick reference handbook 
to try to stop flames that were entering the cockpit as it was found welded into the cockpit wall. Molten aluminium had come down from the cockpit ceiling. The aircraft struck the waters of Peggy's Cove, nose down with over 90 degrees of bank at more than 300 knots and with a force of around 350 g, causing it to completely disintegrate. The impact shook buildings, and the sound echoed around the cove. Local fishermen took to the freezing waters in their boats. They had never seen anything like it. Hundreds of bodies, or what was left of them, littered the ocean. A fisherman saw a human heart float on the water. Wallets emptied by the force of the explosion, hundreds of shoes, clothes, broken suitcases, eyeglasses, children's toys. The remnants of Swiss Air 111 lay floating on the surface of the water. Everything had to be scooped up in nets. Debris and seawater filled the body bags, but not one single intact body. None of the 229 souls on board survived. What is also known is that even had the captain tried to land as soon as he declared an emergency and decided to divert to Halifax, there would have been insufficient time to get down before the fire took hold of the cockpit. In a heroic effort, an estimated two million pieces of debris were recovered and reassembled as part of the investigation. It was a mammoth task to rebuild the aircraft and establish what had occurred. The Transportation Safety Board of Canada made nine recommendations relating to changes in aircraft material, electrical systems and data recorders, but one issue not addressed was the improper installation of the flight entertainment system by unqualified third parties. The captain's wife has returned with her children three times to the site of the crash in beautiful Peggy's Cove. She scattered her husband's ashes there and threw flowers on the waves. Lighthouses, she said, are tombstones for me now. Of her husband, she quietly remarked on one visit, he's chosen a very nice place for his grave. It was just too early. Music by bensounds.com